please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 3. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Leviticus 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles on the tables just outside the door. You're welcome to use one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, you're welcome to take one of those, uh, keep it, write your name in it, take it home with you, uh, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read Leviticus chapter 3, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we long to hear your voice, to hear from you, to, we long for you to speak to us. We thank you that you have given us your word for just that purpose. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit, that we would receive the gospel afresh or maybe even for the first time that we would be changed people because of our encounter this morning with you through the scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Leviticus chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. From the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys." Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. (laughs) What does it mean to have a seat at the table? Do you know that expression, right? To have a a seat or have a place at the table? Well, it, it may mean different things at different times. Uh, to, have, uh, to have a seat at the table um, might mean to have a voice in the conversation, might mean to have a vote right, in decision-making. At the very least, to have a seat at the table means to be accepted, means to be welcomed in. 
To sit and have a meal with someone has always been a sign of intimacy and acceptance. That may be obscured a little bit in our culture, but it's not lost, right? It's obscured because uh, we eat in so many public places. And we eat in restaurants all the time with dozens of people that we don't even know. and, And there's no intimacy going on there. And yet, if you are sitting in as casual a restaurant as McDonald's and someone comes up and sits down at your table who you don't know, that's awkward. They, they've broken some certain uh, cultural rule of etiquette, which shows in part that even in public places, right, your table is, is for your friends, it's for your family, it's for your loved ones, at least for your acquaintances. Because eating a meal together is a sign, on some level, a sign of acceptance, a sign of belonging. This morning we're going to look at the peace offering And uh, part of the peace offering was eaten by the offerer, by the one who brought the offering. And the peace offering was a sign of acceptance and intimacy with God. It was also a sign of the abundance of God's provision. The Israelites were to feast before the Lord. And so acceptance and abundance are going to be two notes that we strike again and again as we work through the text this morning. As we read through uh, Leviticus 3, you you may have noticed it's very similar in structure to the first two chapters of Leviticus, if you've been here the past couple of weeks. Each chapter talks about the procedures for bringing an offering to the Lord. Uh, They walk us, and each chapter also walks us through that procedure three times at least. Each time, though, it talks about a a different different offering that might be brought. So uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 says, if he offers an animal from the herd. And then verse 6 says, if his offering is an animal from the flock. And then verse 12 says, if his offering is a goat. And then the three paragraphs that follow that are essentially the same. And you'll notice as we read that the paragraphs focus on kind of the bare bones procedures. Here are the things that are supposed to happen. And Leviticus is in part, it's a a how-to manual for Israel. How are they to do this thing? Of course, as we look at Leviticus 3 this morning, our goal is is not just to explain the procedure. We don't need to know how to do these things, thankfully. Uh, No one has brought me a goat this morning to sacrifice and lay on the altar, which I appreciate. But we want to know the why of the procedure, right? Why are they doing these things? What does the peace offering mean? And we're going to move uh, chronologically this morning. We're going to talk about Israel's place at the table, and then we're going to talk about Jesus' place at the table, and then we're going to talk about our place at the table. You can see that's our outline. It's on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to use that space for taking notes or to follow along. First, we'll talk about Israel's place at the table. God desires to dwell with his people. I hope you don't get tired of me saying that uh, because it's an important part of Leviticus and I'm probably going to keep saying it week after week as we are working through the book of Leviticus. God desires to dwell with his people. From the very beginning, God's plan was to dwell with humanity, that we might know his blessing, that we might experience his goodness. And in that original home, you may remember in Genesis 1 and 2, God provided food. There was an abundance of fruit trees in the Garden of Eden, including the Tree of Life, which was in the midst of the garden. All of those fruit trees were for Adam and Eve to feast daily in God's presence. There was only one tree uh, that was off limits, one dish that was not for them. 
And uh, of course, you may know the story, right? Adam and Eve took from that one tree, and so rejecting God as their king, and when you reject God as your king, you are ejected from his house, and that's what happened. Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden to toil for their food in the wilderness. Of course, God didn't give up on his plan to dwell with his people. He chose Abraham out of all the nations. He made great promises to him. Then he brought Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness. And there again, he fed them water from the rock, bread from heaven, even quail on a couple of occasions. Which brings us to the book of Leviticus. When we get to Leviticus, God has built a tent in which he is going to dwell in the midst of his people. A place where he's going to specially manifest his presence. Of course, uh, the heaven, Solomon says, even the highest heavens cannot contain God, and yet he chooses to manifest his presence in the midst of his people. He chooses to dwell in their midst. Leviticus details God's relationship to his people. What does it look like? How does he relate to his people as he dwells in their midst? What does that relationship look like? How, how does it, what does it look like day after day? And we've been looking at the offerings for a couple weeks now. They're a big part of that relationship. And we noted that uh, there were a number of offerings that had to do with the shedding of blood. And that all the bloody offerings teach us about atonement. In Leviticus, God says that, that he gave the blood to make atonement. What that means is the bloody offerings brought peace. Peace by by way of ransom, right? The one life, the animals represented by the blood, taking the place of the other, the Israelites' life. The blameless animal then became a pleasing sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to to the Lord as it was laid on the altar, turned into smoke, and ascended into heaven. It it sounds uh, brutal to us, maybe. Certainly, uh, it's far from our experience But the point is that Israel, for her sin, deserved judgment. They deserved the judgment of death. But God, in his mercy, would accept a substitute in their place, the blameless in the place of the blameworthy. The bloody offerings, of course, teach us on this side of the cross that Jesus took our place, the blameless for the blameworthy, when he shed his blood for our sin. He died in our place, and in him we become a pleasing aroma to our Father. A reconciliation has happened. And we talked about the the burnt offering in particular, or the ascension offering, which told us that fellowship happens as we offer our whole selves up to our Father, as we commit ourselves wholly to Him. Last week, we looked at the grain offering, or the tribute offering, which taught us to honor God by offering tribute to Him out of what He has given to us. And then this week, this morning, we come to the peace offering, which is about reconciliation, It's about rejoicing in the abundance that is ours because of God's acceptance of us as his people. It's about rejoicing in in the tangible expressions of God's love for us. Or Or to put it differently, it's about rejoicing in God's love for us as demonstrated in the many tangible gifts that he showers upon his people. Now, as you actually look at chapter 3, you may, again, notice a striking similarity to chapter 1. Uh, in fact, it's so similar, as you read through it, it may be difficult to figure out what's actually different here. And there are at least two substantial differences between chapter 3 and chapter 1. Uh, there are others that you could point out, but two that are pretty significant. The one is, well, the name of the offering. Uh, instead of being called the burnt offering or the ascension offering, it's, it's called the peace offering. And two, there are certain distinctions as to what is actually laid on the altar and burned up into smoke. 
First, let, let's think about the name, the, the peace offering. You know, the word for peace offering comes from a, a pretty common Hebrew word for peace, shalom. And it, it means more than the English word peace. Uh, it means more than the absence of war, as one commentator put it. Uh, true peace means health and prosperity and peace with God. It means peace in every aspect of life. It means fullness of life and abundance and well-being. One uh, Old Testament dictionary uses words like completeness and wholeness and harmony and fulfillment Uh, Unity, a restored relationship, unimpaired relationships with others, a fulfillment in one's undertakings, right? Peace is life as it was meant to be. Nothing broken. No broken bodies, no broken relationships, no failures, no fruitless work, no hunger, no disease, no war. Peace is life as it was meant to be. The life our hearts long for. Peace is acceptance with God. Peace is abundance in life. So why a peace offering then? Which brings us to the second distinction between the peace offering and the ascension offering. What is and what is not put on the altar. Which shows us ultimately that the peace offering was an opportunity for the Israelites to enter into God's peace. You see, in the burnt offering, in the end, everything was burned on the altar. But that's not so with the peace offering. Verses uh, 3 and 4 give us kind of a short list of things that are placed on the altar. And that short list is is the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver. Why these things? Well, here's my best go. Uh, First, this is maybe the easiest one, the fat. The the fat was considered the the best part. In fact, uh, Genesis 45, verse 18, when Pharaoh is telling Joseph to bring his family down to Egypt, he says, I will give you the best of the land and you shall eat of the fat of the land. Fat means simply the the best part, the best of whatever it is. Okay, then what about the kidneys? Why are the kidneys offered up to God? Well, uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 14, actually has both fat and kidneys in it. it, The ESV translates it like this. It says, talks about the very finest of the wheat. But there's a footnote in the ESV, which is really helpful. And the footnote says, the kidney fat of the wheat. (laughs) It's kind of an odd expression, not one that we would use. But what's it getting at? It's saying, again, that the best of the wheat, the finest part of the wheat, the abundance of the wheat and so some say that the kidneys, right, because they're, they were covered in fat, they were also just part of the best that was given up to God. That's possible. There's actually another way the word kidneys is used in the scriptures. Uh, in Job chapter 19, verse 27, Job says, My heart faints within me. Psalm 16 says, My heart instructs me. But in both places, the word translated heart is actually the word for kidneys. Uh, You see, just as we talk about the heart as the seat of the emotions in the inner man, sometimes the Israelites talked about the kidneys as a seat of the emotions in the inner man. So the fat was the the best, the best of the best even, and the kidneys were the seat of the soul. They were the heart. Then you have the long lobe of the liver. It's interesting, uh, the word long lobe actually relates to the word for remnant, which is used elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, when it talks about the remnant of Israel that's saved out of judgment. Um, liver actually sounds like the Hebrew word for glory. What does all that mean? I have no idea. 
But remember, the animal is, uh, represents the worshiper, right? In verse 2, Israel laid his hand on the head of the peace offering. I identified with the peace offering. And so taken this way, the, Israel, in, the Israelite, in offering up the fat and offering up the kidneys, was offering up his best and his heart to the Lord. The animal represents the worshiper. He's offering up his best and his heart to the Lord. But actually, what's more important in the peace offering is what is not offered on the altar. See, in this offering, it is only those things that are placed on the altar. The rest is eaten, some by the priests and some by the worshiper himself. And it's only in this offering where the worshiper actually gets to partake of the offering. All the other offerings... The worshiper doesn't get any of it, right? It all goes, it's either burned on the altar or the priest gets to eat some of it, uh, which is actually possibly why the word sacrifice is used in uh, chapter 3 and not anywhere else. Uh, sacrifice apparently implied that the worshiper got to eat some of it. Everywhere else is just used the word offering. <clears throat> the imagery, though, right, why does, the, why does the worshiper get to eat? The imagery is twofold. Uh, one, it, it means that the worshiper right here in this moment, right, has a, has a place at Yahweh's table. And God, of course, didn't need these offerings, nor did he eat them, right? Uh, Psalm 50 explicitly tells us that. But the Israelites were offering up their food to their God. And most often the priests did get a portion. They ate of God's bounty, right? They had a place at the king's table. But here, not only the priests, but the worshiper himself and all of his family with him was able to eat at the table. The worshiper was accepted at God's table. The, the other part of the imagery, it means the worshiper got to feast, right? I mean, meat was, was probably rarely eaten in Israel. Some think, in fact, at this point in Israel's life, that no meat was eaten that was not offered up at the temple. And what that would mean is that only at this offering did the Israelites get a chance to eat meat and feast together. And you think about this, right? The priest was not cooking hamburgers, right? This is a whole cow or a whole sheep or a whole goat offered up. This is, not, this is not a meal. This is a feast, right? Can you imagine you taking a whole cow and bringing it to the, 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 the priest and he takes the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver and you get most of the rest to eat? And uh, it all had to be eaten in a day, or two, depending on what kind of peace offering it was. This is an opportunity for your family to feast. In fact, in Leviticus 7, we find out that the Israelites had to bring four different kinds of bread along with the peace offering. Four different kinds of bread. And if I understand correctly, right, some was given to the priest and some was eaten along with the sacrifice. Again, this is a feast. A whole cow and four different kinds of bread, and you, you need to eat it all in, in a day or two. Well, what's the point? The point is that the peace offering was an opportunity to enter into peace, to enter into shalom. It's an opportunity for Israel to enjoy the acceptance of God by eating at his table and the abundance of God by feasting in his presence. So the peace offering is an opportunity for Israelites to, to enter into God's peace, to enjoy God's love and his bounty. Now, it may be obvious, but it's also worth noting that the peace offering was an opportunity to celebrate, right? That Leviticus 7, uh, again, it gives three different times that an Israelite might bring a peace offering. It might be a thanksgiving offering, it might be a vow offering, it might be a free will offering. So the Israelite, he might be bringing this peace offering um, to, to give thanks to God for something specific in his life. 
He might be bringing this uh, to acknowledge that God had fulfilled sort of his half of a vow. Uh, He might be bringing it just because. But whatever the case, the point is to celebrate God's goodness to you in some way. God had provided, so you are giving thanks. God had kept his word, so you are giving thanks, right? God is your God, so you are giving thanks just because. The peace offering is an opportunity to, to sort of enter into the shalom of God and to give thanks to him for it. That's the peace offering, an opportunity to, to enter into the acceptance and abundance of God at his table, an opportunity to give thanks to him for that acceptance and abundance. Finally, as, as we think about the peace offering, though, there, there's another aspect that we need to keep in mind. The peace offering was also an opportunity to hope. You know, on some level, the Israelites knew that, that sacrifices and offerings God did not desire. That's repeated in different places in the Old Testament. They knew as well that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Which means that every sacrifice, rather than actually taking away sin, rather than actually making atonement, every sacrifice was a reminder day after day, year after year, of their need for atonement. And so they ate in hope, in hope of one day their, that their atonement would come. Which, of course, brings us to Jesus. And there are two things to talk about as we, as we think about Jesus. I want to talk about how he welcomed people, sort of, quote, to his table, though he had no table because he had no home, but how he welcomed people, and two, Jesus' own experience of God's acceptance and abundance. Think about it. Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them. We see that in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, this story where Matthew himself has a feast for Jesus And many tax collectors and sinners gather around him, and the religious people grumble about this, and they say, how dare you, Jesus, right? You're supposed to be a holy man, a religious teacher. How can you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' answer is is classic, right? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call sinners, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And his answer is so great because it shows both Jesus' acceptance of sinful people like you and I without justifying their sin. Jesus is like a physician who came to heal the sick, to call sinners to repentance. Now maybe you know how sinful you are. Maybe you feel the weight of your sin. Maybe you feel uh, your guilt. Maybe you feel shame. Maybe you feel like there's something wrong with you and You think about Jesus and his acceptance of sinners, and you think, well, he could never love me. Well, know this, that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. He welcomes them to his table, and Jesus is ready to welcome you as well. Of course, the question is, how can this be? I mean, Jesus is holy, after all. He is sinless. He is perfect. How can Jesus receive sinners and eat with them? Which brings us to the other thing we need to see about Jesus, which is his own experience of God's abundance and acceptance. You know, Jesus being God incarnate, of course, knew God uh, perfectly. He knew perfectly his Father's love and trusted in his Father's provision. He was the one who said, you know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He trusted his Father. But what we need to see at the moment is that Jesus' earthly ministry actually begins and ends with want. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus fasted 40 days in the wilderness And at the end of that 40 days, Matthew and Luke tell us simply, he was hungry. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if, if, if I didn't eat for 40 days, right, saying I was hungry would be an understatement. And at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's dying on the cross, and he cries out, I thirst. Why did Jesus hunger and thirst in this life? I mean, why did Jesus, of all people, know what it means to go without? I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. Why did the Father not provide for him out of his abundance? I mean, Jesus is the one who told us not to worry about what we shall eat or what we shall drink or what we shall wear because our Father in heaven knows what we need and will care for us like he cares for the birds of the air. Why did Jesus know this lack? For the same reason that he could rightly cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus came into the world to receive not the abundance and acceptance from the, from the Father's hand, but he came to receive rejection and want, hunger and thirst. Jesus came to receive those things because that is what we deserve. See, from the moment Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, all humanity uh, deserved uh, rejection and want because of their sin. As a result of human sin, of course, and alienation from the God of life, things like hunger and thirst and starvation have come into the world. But Jesus came to take our place, to experience our lack, not just to sympathize with us, but to bear the human condition, to bear the wrath of the Father so that we might be brought out of it. Jesus came to experience rejection and want that we might know God's acceptance and abundance. Jesus could welcome sinners and eat with them because he had been rejected by the Father and held back from the Father's table. Of course, We know that Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus came. He identified with us by taking on our humanity. He suffered. He hungered. He thirsted. He was rejected. He died. But Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus passed through through judgment, the judgment of God's rejection, through the hunger, through thirst, through abandonment, and Jesus rose victorious in his resurrection from the dead. And the Father accepted him once more. He was ascended. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, having been given authority over heaven and earth. And and sometimes it seems like the resurrection is kind of an add-on, right? The cross is the important part, but it's not an add-on, right? Only because Jesus was both rejected for us in his death and accepted for us in his resurrection can we now be accepted in him. We are now a pleasing aroma to our Father in Jesus, who has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the Father's right hand. Okay, what does that mean then for us? First, we can talk about God's acceptance and abundance for us, and then I want to talk about the Lord's table. You know, God's acceptance and and abundance, right? By faith in Jesus, we are acceptable to the Father. You, right now, right, in your sin and uncleanness, can be acceptable to the Father through faith in Jesus, The Father will not only accept you, according to the Scriptures, but delight in you and welcome you to his table. And as we talked about, the peace offering was just a small picture of the abundance of the salvation that Israel experienced. And when we come to God through Jesus, we find restoration to our Father. We find renewal of wholeness in our innermost being by the Holy Spirit. We find reconciliation to one another in the church. But of course, that's not all. Jesus promises us more. He promises us a resurrection when our bodies themselves will be made whole again, when the hostile world around us will be subdued under God's purposes, when there will be no more hunger, 
No more thirst, no more crying, no more tears, no more sadness or hate or anger or brokenness. God promises perfect peace, right? Total wholeness when all things will be made new. And he compares that day to a wedding feast when we will be gathered around his table to enter into shalom, right? And to celebrate our God forever. Do you want God to draw near to you and pour out his abundance in your life? Well, turn to Jesus, right? He is the only one who suffered our lack that we might know his fullness. He's the only one who was rejected by the Father that we might be accepted. And he was the only one who hungered and thirsted so that we might feast forever on the Father's grace. Which brings us to the Lord's table. In a moment, I'm going to step to the side and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And, and just as the peace offering both symbolized and was a way of entering into the peace that the Israelites had because Yahweh was their God, and therefore it, it became an opportunity for them right, to give thanks for that peace so that the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, is nothing less. The Lord's Table is an opportunity to enter into the peace of the gospel. We eat to enter in. You know, when I welcome you to this table in just a moment, you are being welcomed to the Father's table. That's one reason Paul in 1 Corinthians, uh, and therefore I, right, Paul is so careful to put a guard around the table, right? He, you know, I say when I stand here, I'll say that this is for those who have trusted in Christ and joined themselves to a gospel-preaching church. And think about the analogy with Israel. The, the sacrifices were for all in the Israelite community, which meant they were for all who had taken on the sign of that community, circumcision. This meal is for all in the community of God's people, which means it's for all who have trusted in Jesus and taken on the sign of this community, baptism. If you have not trusted in Jesus nor received the sign of membership in his family, this meal is not for you. If you believe but have not yet been baptized, this meal is not for you. First take on the sign of God's family, and then you come to the family meal. If you've been baptized, but you don't believe these things, this meal is not for you. Acceptance with God comes through faith. We first put our trust in Jesus' sacrifice, and then we come and partake. Can I encourage you to, to feel that? Um, you are welcome to come to Jesus' table if you come in Jesus' way, through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, as a baptized member of his family. This is a family meal, and all who are believing members of Jesus' family can come. This meal is for baptized people who have professed faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. But I'm saying the Lord's Supper is, is about being welcomed to God's table. What does it mean, then, for those who actually come? Here's what the Lord's table means for those who come. You are being accepted to the Father's table. It's true, this table is not for all, but it is for God's children who have trusted in Jesus and have received the sign. And coming to the table then is a visible sign of God's acceptance. We are symbolically partaking of the sacrifice of Jesus, just as we sp spiritually partake of that sacrifice by faith. We are being welcomed to the Father's table. The Lord's table is a sign of our acceptance with the Father. The Lord's table is also a sign of the abundance of the gospel. Now, this meal is not abundant in any physical way. It's a tiny piece of bread and a tiny cup of wine. And if this is the feast, 
it would be a pretty poor feast. But it's a sign. It's a symbol of the feast. This, by the way, is one reason that uh, we have potluck when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Think about it. Uh, Potluck is not really an add-on. We, we have a meal together afterwards. It's a continuation. Now, now, this is the sacrament, right? Not potluck. Potluck's not a sacrament. But when we gather around tables together, when you welcome others to your table, when others welcome you, you're, you're living out the gospel in that moment, giving and receiving the acceptance of Jesus. When we feast and enjoy the abundance of our meal together, it too is a foreshadow of things to come. And yes, in some sense, every time you sit down with others and and eat with them to eat and to drink, every time you show acceptance and rejoice in God's provision, it's it's a mini taste, a mini foretaste of things to come. And so we eat to enter in. We eat to enjoy for a moment the acceptance and abundance of the new life that we have in Jesus. The Lord's Supper is also an opportunity to give thanks. You know, we eat to enter in. We also eat in thanksgiving. It's no surprise that when we partake, we, we give thanks, right? We, we thank God for the work of Jesus on the cross. Uh, we thank God uh, for, for Jesus, for our sacrifice. We thank him uh, for the, the one who is our peace offering, the one who is our peace, according to Scripture. And so we eat to give thanks for the acceptance and the abundance that is ours in Jesus. And this, of course, you know, giving thanks isn't something that we should only do at the Lord's table, But the Lord's Supper should engender in us grateful hearts as we take a moment to remember God's gracious provision in the cross. You know, sometimes people think about Christianity as as kind of a depressing religion, uh, always talking about sin and hell and wrath and judgment. And, And it's true, we do talk about those things. Those are important realities that we have to face. But the gospel is about God removing those things through Jesus and accepting us in his son, and giving us life to the full, and a reason to celebrate. The Lord's table is about our celebrating with thanksgiving the fullness of life we have been given through Jesus. This is a celebration, right? This is a feast. This is a festival. An opportunity to rejoice. Third, the Lord's Supper, it's also an opportunity to hope. You know, we eat to enter in, we eat in thanksgiving, we eat in hope. You know, this meal is not our last. In in this life, many of us uh, don't experience fullness of any kind, right? Uh, Life leaves us hungry or empty or with a bad taste in our mouths. How many go without basic needs in life? How much of life is disappointing? And if this is the fullness that God has for us, well, some might say he can keep it. If the Lord's table is the fullness God has for us, his table is poorly set. But this meal is rich because it points beyond itself. It points back to the cross. It points out to the innumerable ways that God provides for us. And it points us forward to the fullness to come. This, there is a meal to come, right? The fullness of peace. When we will eat with God at his table at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, our, our present experience is, is not the fullness of our new life. We have reconciliation with God, to be sure. We have forgiveness. We have the Spirit. But we hope in the resurrection of our bodies. We hope in a restored world. We hope in wholeness and peace, in no more war and no more enmity and no more brokenness. And so we eat in hope of things to come. And we rejoice in the fullness, in the abundance that is to come. 
Can I invite you to come to the Lord's table this morning, to come and, and enter into God's acceptance and abundance, to come and give thanks for God's acceptance and abundance, to celebrate it, to come and hope in better things still to come. This is what this meal is about. This is our peace offering that Jesus has offered up for us. And now we partake. We partake to enter in. We partake to celebrate with thanksgiving. And we partake to hope. Please pray with me. Our Father, we, we thank you for this gift. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. For the gift of the forgiveness of sins. For Uh, the gift of new life in Christ by the Spirit, for the gift of the Holy uh, Spirit and the hope of the resurrection. Father, we pray that right now as we partake of this meal that that you would enable us to enjoy your acceptance more fully, that you would enable us to give thanks for that and to enable us to hope in a way that brings you honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.